Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So my next guest is Ian Schoen. Ian ran a manufacturing and design business, built it up to $4 million in revenue, had a nice multi-million dollar exit out of the company. A couple things to listen for. One, take a listen to how he documented his processes into what are called SOPs or standard operating procedures. He really invested some significant time in making sure his business ran an autopilot, making it as attractive to anybody else looking at it from the outside to buy, number one. Number two, Think about the role and the way he changed his philosophy around selling. In the early days, he thought it was his business broker's job to sell his company. And then eventually he got to the point where he got more comfortable selling it himself with the help of his broker. But he really took the responsibility of closing and consummating the sale uh, personally. And so as you hear that evolution in this interview, please think about your own role in closing the sale of your company. Here without further ado is Ian Schoen. Ian, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, thanks, Sean, for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, not at all. So we're talking about this company, Two Tree International. What a crazy name to begin with. Yeah, <laughs> I think uh, I think there's two trees outside of the office window, and we we're like, yeah, two tree. That sounds good. Perfect. Lots of thought went into that. It's great. So, what did you guys do? Um, so, we were a design and manufacturing company. Um, I went to school for uh, product design. And when I got out of school, I started looking around me at all these wonderful products and thought, you know, I can do that. Um, and so we started manufacturing uh, products and selling directly to customers. Um, at the time, I was spending quite a bit of uh, my time in China. So I had relationships with factories. Um, and like I said, I had the design background. And so uh, we fell, literally fell upon a couple of industries um, and started manufacturing products for them. And so were these done on spec? So a, a client would come to you and say, look, I want a widget. I want it to be this big, this tall. And then you would make it for them. Or were you guys dreaming up the ideas in your head and then taking them to market? Yeah. Early on in my career, I saw, you know, a lot of, a lot of product designers, um, run or are part of, um, companies that do client work. And I, from the beginning, I said, no way to client work. I can't do that. Um, because a lot of times the products didn't go anywhere. Um, you know, you're getting paid hourly. So we made the decision early um, to go for um, our own products, essentially. And so one of the first industries that we attacked was the um, parking industry. So very unsexy industry. Uh, had been around for 100 years. Um, but they had these products that were essentially metal key cabinets. Um, so I know this is very exciting stuff, but, uh, some of the, some of the most unsexy stuff ends up being the, uh, the best, most profitable stuff. And so that was our first product line. When, was, when you uh, say metal key cabinets, I don't know what that means. What? Yeah. So just a key organizer, um, specifically for parking garages and valet attendants. Oh, okay. 
Yes, the stuff gets overlooked. Yeah, total aside, but when one of my first jobs in, in, in high school was a car valet at the Four Seasons Hotel in Toronto. So I got to, I got to drive every possible car you could imagine at like three miles an hour. But I know yeah. exactly the board you're talking about, right? Because you have like 100 keys. They all look the same. You're running around for a wedding. You kind of get like 50 cars up to the lobby in 10 minutes, and they yes. all look the same. So you would organize that board. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So and cool. this is how you fall into things, John, is I was a valet attendant also. Oh, and, we had that um, in common. <laughs> yeah. And so um, when I got out of uh, when I got out of school, I, I thought back to my previous experience of parking cars. And then I thought to the industry and then I thought to the products that there were. Um, and at the time, um, it was just a bunch of mom and pop shops making these things in their garages. No one had started to mass manufacture them. And no one had considered um, some of the design elements that we brought to the industry. And so uh, that was really the first opportunity that we saw. And then uh, from there, we started making some other things. Um, we made portable bars, um, which are exactly what they sound like, uh, rolling bars for catering events and conventions. Um, and we also made uh, cat furniture, which is uh kind of a little bit off base from the uh, from the bars and the other industrial goods but it was uh, it was fun for us how did you I mean that's like learning three unique industries it'd be like you know I'm gonna I'm gonna start a dentist practice I'm gonna manufacture tables and I'm gonna have you know like a banana distribution company like it seems to me to to, to defy every rule of business where you pick a niche you figure out how to do it like how, was it hard to manage three almost completely different businesses? Yeah. So on the back end, a lot of it looks the same, right? From a manufacturing standpoint um, and from a design standpoint and from a logistics standpoint. I mean, it all kind of looks the same. Where it starts to differ is um, your customers and your marketing. And so with the bars and with the parking equipment, it's B2B. Um, So essentially your process is the same for marketing to these people, but your customer segment or your customer list is different. Um, So there are a fair amount of similarities um, until you start um, marketing to your customer and selling to your customer. So if if that makes sense, not super, not so different that you can't do it because we did. Um, But in terms of the cat products, the cat products were um, more different than the bars and the uh, parking equipment because it was uh, B2C. And that was a bit of a different game. So, you know, we had distributors and we were um, you know, doing Facebook and things like that, that a lot of these uh, other industry professionals weren't buying from on those platforms. So that was a bit of a departure, um, the cat stuff, and uh, probably some of the reason why it wasn't as successful for us. Interesting. When you, when you say us, Ian, was were you the sole shareholder? Did you have other people as, as shareholders in the company? Uh, I had my business partner, Dan Andrews. Um, and then uh, we also, I think at the time we sold the company, we had about 15 employees. So... Got it. And so let's get into that. What what was the run rate of the company by the time you decided you wanted to sell it? Um, we had gotten it up to about $4 million in sales. Uh, started the business in 2008 with a loan for $50,000, so essentially nothing. Um, and that was enough to fund our first container. Um, and then from there, it just kind of snowballed and ended up at around $4 million. Probably a nice little return on investment over the, you know, whatever it was, seven-year period between 08 <laughs> and 08. And you sold in 15, 2015? Yeah. Yeah. God. I just sold last year. So yeah, it wasn't it wasn't too bad of an investment on that 50 grand. <laughs> yeah, I guess. So talk to us about, I mean, what was the trigger that made you want to sell? 
So uh, it was it was a lot of things, and I think it's a lot of things for most people. But um, twenty, jeez, I guess now it's almost a year and a half. Well, sorry. So I guess for me, um, about two years ago, um, the guy that I built the company with, our GM, he decided that he was gonna leave the company. Um, and that kind of caught me off guard. Uh, I wasn't expecting him to um, to kind of bow out, and and so early in the game too for me. I mean, I think a lot of these companies they they take a while to build. Um, and so, you know, he came to me. I was actually in Mexico at the time, and he said, um, and he was essentially running the company for me. He said, "Hey, I, I think it's time for me to go," and that's kind of what started me thinking, like, um, okay. Something big is going to change here. Um, I either have to get back into the business, or I have to hire somebody to replace him, or I have to sell this company um, because um, I just couldn't see it without him. Um, but turns out, of course, I was wrong. Um, we got somebody else in his place, and the company kept chugging along. But that was really kind of the catalyst for why um, we decided to start selling the company. Um, the other thing that happened was um, we just got tired of running it. So. Um, it's kind of those two things combined that made me think, hmm, this might be a good opportunity to get out. So for clarity, uh, the person, the general manager you had running it, that was not Dan, your partner, correct? It was a third no. party. Okay, got it. Right. Yeah, he was a guy that we brought in. Uh, he was actually the first employee um, that we brought in. And uh, sometimes it works that way, sometimes it doesn't. But he ended up being the guy that was able to step up and be the general manager of the company. Got it. And so... He leaves, and it was kind of one of those moments where you're like, "This, you know, either I got to get back in the driver's seat here or find somebody else." And it, it felt like the right time to sell. Yeah, I, um, you know, I certainly could have gotten back in the driver's seat, and you know, part of this I want to back up even past when uh, he decided to sell. You know, I read a book uh, by Sam Carpenter. Um, I'm not sure if you read that book too, um, and um, it was. Uh, it really, it really opened my mind. Um, work the system, and um, and so we started creating uh, standard operating procedures in the business, um, and it was basically a set of documents that helped us to run the business um, and could essentially plug anybody in in basically any position and have them understand what we were trying to accomplish there. And so I didn't realize it at the time, but we were essentially uh, setting ourselves up to set to sell the business earlier than the GM left. Um, because what I learned when, throughout the process of selling the business is that um, if you have process in place in your business, um, it makes it very attractive to potential buyers. So, um, you know, when, when I got that call uh, from my GM and I was down in Mexico, you know, I was essentially spending somewhere between five and 10 hours a week myself personally on the business. Um, and a lot of that had to do with just because there was process in place. So it, I, I know it wasn't going to be that hard to replace him, but like the, the emotional aspect of not having him there was, was, was more the trigger. But I just want to point out that these standard operating procedures um, and reading that book was, was really, um, really uh, important for us to be able to sell this business. So the book, again, is called uh, Work the System by Sam yeah. Carpenter. I, I'm not familiar, but that's a great uh, book recommendation. Thanks for that. So you've got, I mean, how much detail had you gone in these SOPs? I mean, like, give me an example of something that you would have gone to the trouble of actually documenting in terms of a standard operating procedure. 
Uh, we documented pretty much everything, you know, uh, pre everything from freight logistics. These are the companies that we use for freight. You call this person uh, to our marketing. You know, this is the marketing report that um, that our web manager sends out every Friday. And this is what it looks like. And these are our key metrics. These are our KPIs. Um, if this is failing, do this. So it, it's very comprehensive in the way that we had um, had put it together. And had was the what was the original intent behind writing the SOPs? Um, it was inspired by by reading that book and just um, it's 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 a it's an enabler, right? Having that kind of power um, because it allows you, you know, as you know, John, in these small businesses, um, a lot of times your your employees, your team members are are the business, and so. I, you know, I saw this firsthand when my GM left, like how fragile of a situation that could be if you didn't have these processes in place. Um, and so, I, you know, I was really motivated too, because at the time I was spending, uh, I think I was out of the country for 10 months away from my business. And so I was really motivated to have these systems in place. So I didn't have to come back into the business, like you were saying, come back into the country and kind of run this thing. And so these SOPs allowed me to, to do that. To basically maintain control of the company, and also when people came came and went, um, it wasn't so big of a disruption. Yeah, we call it hub and spoke. But you know, when we work with the business owners, it's about making sure they're not the hub and a hub and spoke system. They're you know they're they're extracting themselves, and and these SOPs sound like a great way to do it for sure. So. Uh, you have this triggering event. The uh, the GM leaves and gets you thinking. Talk to us about the next step. So, did you take the business to market? Did you hire a business broker? Um, you know, how did you go from the decision to sell to actually you know check in hand? So, I was very naive about the whole situation. I remember this is an embarrassing moment. That's why I'll share it. Uh, I remember offering uh, the GM. I said, "Okay, we'll just stay on for like three to five months while we sell this thing, and then you know we'll have a party and pop champagne or whatever." Like I, that's that was my thought. Like I thought it was going to take three to five months uh, to sell the company, <laughs> and so I think in some cases it does. But um, I've I, you know this this wasn't a this wasn't a, a PE deal. You know, um, it it was a uh, it was a business broker got involved, and we were selling to somebody else that. Had, owned and operated other small businesses. So, um, how did you find that business broker? Um, where everything good happens on the internet. (laughs) So yeah. Um, you know, now that we've sold the business and we've talked about it, I've, I've got a a Rolodex of, of people that could help us sell it. But at the time, yeah, it was kind of, uh, Hey, have you worked with these guys before? Yeah, they're, they're pretty good. You know, that way. (laughs) So you searched on the internet and you did a bit of due diligence to figure out whether they were legit or not, the uh, the business broker. Yeah, yeah. I tried to figure out, um, you know, I tried to kind of figure out the ideal profile for who someone would be that was buying this business. Um, and I kind of heard from friends like, well, you know, it's kind of got to be like five to $10 million deal for it to be a, a private equity deal. Um, and we kind of talked to some of those people, but it, it didn't seem like it was going to be a good fit um, just because... There wasn't a clear merger with other companies. Um, and so, you know, the buyer profile kind of got to be, hey, it could be somebody that's um, run small businesses before, um, somebody that is uh, leaving their kind of corporate career as CEO and wants to own something like this. And so I kind of drafted up what who I thought these, um, these, these people might be and then um, got in touch with the broker and, and 
yeah, kind of confirmed, yes, this is kind of the kind of person that might be buying your business and ended up talking to 15 of them or something like that. And did the broker push your thinking at all, Ian, in terms of the likely candidates to buy it? Or do they kind of take the list and say, okay, we'll go ask these people? I mean, how much, how strategic was your broker in sort of helping you think through the the ideal target uh, acquisition, acquirer? Yeah. uh, You know, for me, it was more of just a thought experiment, like trying to imagine who is going to give me this money. You know what I mean? So it's like you're sitting there and you're like, who's going to give me all this money for this business? And so I, I, for myself, more than anything, I kind of had to imagine the the person that had that money in the bank or could get a loan for it or whatever. Um, but, you know, I think the interesting thing, um, John, was selling a business of, of this side, size um, is that um, it, a, a lot of times the buyers don't necessarily care what they're buying. They just want to buy a business. So... The other assumption that I had that was wrong was somebody had to be an expert in what we were doing to be able to operate this business, which was crazy, like I said, because I already had the SOPs and basically anybody could come in. But what I found was when people were looking to buy this business, it was essentially they were looking at a a range of businesses from buying a Pizza Hut franchise to buying my business. They just wanted to be in the game, which I thought was surprising. And so were these, you know, these people are retired executives or like, what would you say the profile was of the people that you were, you know, you were talking to? Yeah. A couple of retired executives, like I said, and then a couple of people that were already or previously small business owners. That was kind of the majority of, of the people that were looking to buy the business. And so take us uh, the next step. So you'd identified the, the ideal buyer, uh, the business broker then did the, were they involved in sort of taking the business to market? They, they would approach these people, take us through the, the actual next steps of the transaction. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think, um, the, I, I actually have a lot to say about the business broker experience. I think that there's, uh, there's, uh, some new models emerging and I think that there's, um, a lot of improvement that can be done during this process. Um, you know, I think it's the business broker's responsibility to kind of qualify uh, leads that come to you. Uh, during this process, you spend a lot of time. I, I couldn't imagine if I actually had to run the company for 40 hours a week and then entertain these um, these offers that I would have enough time in my life. I mean, I was easily spending 30 to 40 hours a week uh, talking with people on the phone, creating the prospectus, um, just everything involved with um, trying to convince people to buy your business. You know, ultimately, uh, this is something that I didn't understand at the beginning of the process. Um, Business brokers are not necessarily salespeople. And in fact, they could be very bad salespeople. Their job is to bring the deal to the table. It is your responsibility um, as the owner to close the deal and to make the sale. Um, That's interesting. Hmm. Yeah, they can help you. um, They can help facilitate that process, I think. But I did. I never relied on my on my broker to to make and close the sale. Um, And so I I, that's that's something that I didn't understand at the beginning of the process. So, Ian, how did that look like in your case? I mean, classic sales would be you know ask probing questions, you know understand the underlying you know needs of the customer, present a solution. I mean, kind of sales one on one stuff. Was it, were you doing that on those meetings? Were you trying to say things like you know why do you want to buy a business? What do you you know what were the what were you doing to sell these guys? Yeah. So at the beginning of I wasn't doing that at all. I was just talking about myself and, uh, and what I wanted <laughs> from the sale. And it, it was, um, you know, I didn't understand the process, but yeah, as it got, 
as in, I actually had a lot of practice cause we ended up talking to a lot of people, but as we got further and further down, then, then I started to ask more questions about them and what is their financial position and, and how is, um, you know, how is this going to work for them? So I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story here. Um, a lot of, I think a lot of people, and again, this is a business broker's responsibility. I'm not necessarily blaming ours because, you know, they're just trying to get deal flow to the table, but um, I found it to be that a lot of people that were um, inquiring about our business uh, didn't have the funds to follow through. Um, and so they're just basically tire kickers. Um, I had one guy come to me and we're basically right before we're going to sign the LOI, the letter of intent. And um, he basically said, all right, well, you know, now I got to go to my investors and we got to see if we can pull this money together. And I was under the impression that he had the money. We're getting ready to sign this thing. And it turns out that he didn't. And so... Um, you know, pre-qualifying people, and and what I ended up doing in 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 the end of the process was asking people for their personal financial statements. So, hey, are you are you guys qualified to be talking to me? Um, and turning the tables um, was a really good thing because then I got to see if people were actually qualified. And what were you, what were you looking for when you asked? Them? Like, were you literally asking them to send the, you know their four one four one k statements, or what were you asking for? Yeah, just a standard uh, sheet that you fill out that shows all their assets and liabilities. Um, so I could see if they were in a financial position to get a loan, if they could pay cash for this thing. Um, I, I wanted to know if who I was talking to could actually follow through. And what were you looking for? Uh, to see if they had the money that I was asking, basically, or if to see that if they had the means to, to get a loan. Because like I said, I, I had actually two people approach us that... Um, that didn't have that I found out later didn't have the financial means to buy the company, and so it was a big waste of time. And you know, did, spending, but did you get a lot of pushback, Ian? I mean, did people say like, "Who are you to ask me for my financial statement? I'm looking to buy your business." I mean, did people kind of react negatively to that, or no? Actually, they didn't, um, because I think that if they were, if they got offended by that, I would just assume, and no one really did. If they got offended by that, I would just assume that they weren't serious about the process. So here I am opening up my business for everybody to see. I'm just asking for a piece of paper that says that you're qualified to buy it. So I didn't think it was too much to ask. Got it. And clearly it wasn't because you got... Now, how many offers did you ultimately get that went to like a letter of intent of kind of a written offer for the business? So I'll tell you about the first one and I'll tell you about the last one because those are the most important. Um, So early on in the process, um, uh, we got an offer from somebody... Um, basically I'd say it was probably, well, let me back up to, to put this in a perspective. I think we were in a pretty good position when we sold our business because we didn't have to sell our business. Um, and I, I don't know how many people are in this situation, but, um, for us, we just, we just didn't have to sell our business. You know, it was taking an emotional toll on us, but you know, year of year growth was, you know, generally between 50 and a hundred percent. Um, and so, you know, the, the revenue line just was going straight up and to the right. And so, but by the way, that kind of made it hard to, to value the business, but, um, we, we absolutely didn't have to sell the business. And so it, it put us in a good position to, to, to stretch the negotiations out and to kind of get what we wanted. So first offer, and la- yeah, for sure. Tell us about the yeah. first offer and then the last so the first offer um, was an interesting one because it came in probably three months after we put the business on the market. Um, and it, it, essentially, this guy, um, to give you a, to give you a, an archetype for this guy, we call him uh, Deals Dimitri. Um, he, was a, he was a real shark. 
Um, he had bought something like 20 businesses in the past. And that should have been like my first trigger. Like, Hey, this guy, you know, here's this guy coming into my business. He knows a lot more about buying and selling businesses that I do. Um, uh, and so, so I should have, I should have known, Hey, this guy is going to, this guy's going to try some pretty sharky things and which he did. So and ended up basically offering us a little bit more than half of what we were asking, but he had it in cash. And so that was really attractive. And, uh, one of the things that I want to point out here is that, um, this is where you have to keep your eye on the ball. So for me, I knew what I wanted in terms of an exit for me to be happy in the future. And this wasn't the number, but here's a person sitting in front of you with potentially the most cash you've ever seen in your life, um, offering you to walk away, um, at this moment. And, um, it was a pretty, it was a pretty powerful thing for me to, to try and deal with internally say, Hey, do I want to stop this process right now and just kind of walk away? Or do I want to go through this for the next 12 months potentially? Cause that's what it would take. And, um, and on the other side of it, I had, uh, our broker saying, you know, here's the offer. I'm not sure if it's a good offer or not, but, uh, you know, we have to think about what some of the comps are. Uh, we have to think about comps being comparables in your industry. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so he's kind of my lens into the industry. Um, and so, uh, I'm not going to throw him completely under the bus, but, uh, you know, he, he, asked us to entertain the offer. Um, not that it was the best offer, but it, it was something to consider. And so, um, and this, this is getting deep here, but if, if you, if you think about it, the, the business brokers incentives are misaligned with the sellers incentives. So if you sell a business for a million dollars, say the broker gets the typical 10%, they get a hundred thousand dollars. If you sell the business for $2 million, um, which is a big difference from $1 million, the broker only gets $200,000, right? So it's only $100,000 difference for the broker. It's a $1 million difference for me. And so from the broker's perspective, hey, I get this business off my plate. So what if it sells for half as much as I wanted to sell it for? I get to move on and create more deal flow, right? And I get to sell four other businesses in the time that this one might take me 12 months. So I think a lot of in a lot of ways you have to be careful um, in terms of the alignment of your your objectives with your with your uh, business broker. So your broker in this case encouraged you to at least consider Dimitri's offer. Yeah, yeah, and I think the reason was was just what I said, which is you know he he knew that this business wasn't going to be the most easy business to sell, and if he could kind of get it out of the way now. You know what's the what's the difference for him? That it's very marginal upside for him to keep swinging at the fences for the next twelve months. So tell us about the last offer and and how much time went by between Dimitri's offer and the and the one that you actually accepted. Uh, almost twelve months. And how much was the 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 one that you accepted more than Dimitri's offer? So we ended up getting um, more than we had initially listed the business for sale. Uh, the when we first listed it on the market, like I said, I mean the revenue for this company just continued to climb, and so um, by the time we got to the last um, person that ended up buying the business, we had to um, increase the sales price, and so yeah, it was quite a bit. It was exactly what I wanted to walk away with, um, and what I felt comfortable with. Now, I will say this about in terms of what you walk away with. 
Um, you know, if you have a deal and the person inks the contract and it says $5 million on the contract, you know, there's a lot of things that happen, um, to chip away of that $5 million, your broker, your lawyer, your taxes, a lot of times in the contracts that you guys write together, there could be, um, you know, uh, warranty issues. Well, lay, um, lay that out for us, Ian, because I think that's sure. really important. So, uh, so what are we paying? What, what did you pay your broker? It sounds like about 10% on the top. Yeah, that's a basically industry standard. Yep. Got it. Okay. So as you're listening to this, know that whoever's representing you, you're going to have to pay them, whether it's an M&A professional, business broker, et cetera. You have to pay them. Fine. So that's kind of one fee. And what did you pay for legals to consummate the deal, if you don't mind me asking, Ian? So um, the the lawyer was a whole other story. Um, so unfortunately for us, I mean, I had a couple lawyers in my pocket um, that could help us with other aspects of the business. Um, but I didn't have a person that was um, good in dealing with M&A. And so I made the fatal mistake uh, of going to the internet and uh, finding whoever had the best SEO. <laughs> and that doesn't necessarily mean... It worked mean for you once. It didn't work for you again. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're the, the best at uh, being a lawyer if they're good at SEO. So anyways, I found our lawyer, SEO Mike. That's what I call him. And, um, and, and these guys are interesting. I, I think for them to be effective at their at their job, they really have to understand your business. And so I guess what I would recommend is that um, before you start selling your business or when you know that you want to sell your business, start speaking with a lawyer about what your objectives are uh, in the sale and see if they can, um, they can start to understand your business. So I spent a lot of time with this lawyer explaining to him how our business operated, explaining to him, you know, what I thought the liabilities were and, Honestly, with these contracts, you can only protect against so much um, because it's just too expensive to write contracts that will protect you against all the potential downsides. Not only that, you have to, your lawyer has to agree with the buyer's lawyer. And so, uh, you know, lawyers kill deals. Um, that's, that's one of my takeaways here. And it's definitely something that could have happened. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's really good advice, Ian. And, and, and you know, there's a big difference, as you found out uh, the hard way, to some extent, that between a deal lawyer, a lawyer that's trained in, in, in commercial finance, and the lawyer that incorporated your company, or the lawyer, to your point, that is great at SEO. A corporate finance lawyer, someone who buys and sells companies for a living, kind of, you know, they're going to try most of the time to get the deal done in the most favorable way possible for their client. But they know that the, the, the process of selling a business is inherently a give and take. Like they're not gonna win every battle. They're gonna have right. to concede some points. Whereas the, the lawyer who you may have gone to to incorporate your business, their whole frame of reference is risk management, right? So they are trying to make sure that there is no possible way that you are exposed in any possible way that every possible detail of the deal uh, is in your favor, where the problem with that is it protects you very well, but a lot of deals fall apart because the other side goes, your lawyer is completely unworkable. Like, we can't do business with this guy. Whereas, right. again, commercial lawyers, they know that it's it's a bit of negotiation. There's a bit of middle, you know, bit of wiggle room. There's There's a middle ground that has to be found. And if you're not experienced in this kind of stuff, you know, when the other party says, and I'm not experienced, you know, it's like, 
uh, buying a home, you only do it a couple times and you know, it's like, it's like, where, where do you get to practice for this stuff? You don't really get to practice. And, uh, so when the other party comes to you and says, you know, you guys are crazy, we're not signing this document. Your lawyer looks at you like, um, you know, this is what you should do. It's like, well, I've, I've never been here before. You sure I should walk away from all this money? Um, and so, uh, it's a difficult position to be in. Luckily I wasn't necessarily put in that position, but I could see, um, there were, there was a couple opportunities where we had to draft up some documents and, uh, I, I could see how, how we were having a hard time getting through them. So uh, just, just to go back to the original question around money. So you're paying your broker around 10%, uh, yep. roughly ballpark it for me. What'd you spend on, on lawyers through to actually get the deal done? Just ballpark. Um, I think it was, uh, what, so this is important to know, and this is something that I didn't know, um, is that it's the responsibility, uh, generally speaking, of the buyer to draft up most of the documents, and then for the seller to kind of add in what's needed, you know, for for the seller to feel comfortable. So it, we didn't have to spend that much. I think it was probably less than twenty thousand dollars. Is that your experience too, John? Uh, sure. So yeah, I think that's uh, that's fair. But I mean. The legals can be, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars depending on the deal size. So, oh, I um, just meant in terms of um, yeah, the offer the, letter is usually usually is usually written by, uh, you know, the, the the firm trying to buy your company, and the share purchase agreement is usually again written at least the first draft by the uh, the organization trying to buy your company. Um, so yeah, I think that's uh, that's pretty standard. So wrapping things up, had it Ian. You said you had a number um, that, quote unquote, you would feel comfortable walking away from the business with. Again, we don't need to know the number. I understand it was a multi-million dollar exit, but I'm more interested in the way your mind got your head around that number. I mean, was it, you know, some some people say, well, you know, you, you got to pick your number because, you, you know, you've got to withdraw 4% of it. And you got to be able to live on that 4% for the rest of your life. And, and if you can't, then you can't sell your company. Was that the way you were thinking about your number or did you arrive at it in a different way? So uh, I'm, a, I'm a numbers guy. Like I like to, I like to play with the numbers. I think it's fun. Um, one of the things that I enjoyed during the process was um, basically because we were fortunate enough for the revenue to continue to climb. Um, was that uh, every month I didn't sell the business, I still got paid a handsome salary. And so for me, um, it was really about sticking to my number because uh, early on in the game, I told you Deals Dimitri came and he tried to offer us a low number. And so if I would have taken that number, I would have lost the 12 months of revenue that we got in the time that we were finding the new buyer. Um, and I would have lost half of my asking price. So it was really like the longer I could wait, the better because I was the valuation was going up and my income was going up. Um, that being said, you know, I, I wanted to get out from underneath the business. And so, um, and a lot of these small businesses, John, I think you know this, but it's it's can be hard to get your money out while you're running it. And especially in this business for me, because it was a very capital intensive business, I had a lot of inventory and as the business scaled, the inventory scaled. So it seemed like every year I was pouring money back into the business. Now, of course, I was seeing a great return on that, but I was really ready for the for the payday um, and for, for me to actually earn most of that money. And so was for that, me, it, it came down... It, was that because you wanted to go buy something or you wanted to... Like, what? why were you ready for a payday? I mean, you're a relatively young guy, so, you know, I'm assuming it wasn't because you needed it for you know, home healthcare 
right. retirement needs. <laughs> maybe maybe I'm wrong. Tell tell me why you need it. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. Um, well, it goes back to kind of when we first started talking in the beginning of the episode. You know, I do what's called the on-stage test. You know, do I want to be talking about this business and this industry seven years from now? Um, and the answer is no. You know, your creative energy is in high demand. Do I want to spend it on this asset for the next seven years? And so um, I, I think that, and I, and I believe now that I can take that money and deploy it in in, uh, in ways that I'm more passionate about, I guess. So I was seeing a good return on this money in the business, but I wasn't super passionate about it, if that makes sense. It does, which is a great segue to end the interview with what are you up to now? I mean, what's what has caught your passion? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I guess uh, about, I'd say four or five years ago, me and my business partner, Dan Andrews, we started um, a podcast. Uh, at the time, it's called the Lifestyle Business Podcast. Now it's called the Tropical MBA. Um, and we started talking about this business since its inception. So if you go back and listen to the first episode, it's us fumbling around, figuring out how to do PPC and uh, manufacturing in China. And then um, we start just basically talking about every week, you know, how this business is run and how it's growing. And so if you go and listen to that, um, that podcast, you'll hear the whole story about this business. Um, and through that podcast, um, we kind of cultivated a group of other people that were doing similar things. And this journey, as you know, John can be pretty lonely. Um, and so trying to figure out other people that are building small businesses online, um, was important to us because we needed a feedback and then B we wanted to help other people um, with their business too. So we started a community um, and it's called the dynamite circle. And uh, we've got a little bit over a thousand members and it's, you know, guys like me and you that have run or exited from businesses that are looking for other opportunities and uh, working online and, and value um, time and mobility um, and all the things that uh, these businesses afford us. Where do we find uh, the Dynamite community? Sorry, the, the Dynamite community? Yeah, it's called the Dynamite Circle. It's Excuse dynamitecircle.com. The dynamitecircle.com. Dynamite yeah. dynamite but before you join or before you even consider something like that, I would definitely um, listen to the podcast at tropicalmba.com and see if it's if it's your kind of people. tropicalmba.com and diamondcircle.com. Ian Schultz, Dynamite thanks. Circle. Excuse yep. me, dynamitecircle.com. Ian Schultz, thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.